Hi everyone, this is Pastor Andy Lighty of Rosewood Church. I hope your year's going well so far. We're kicking ours off here with a sermon series called What We Believe. Um, for the next several weeks, our youth are going to be participating in confirmation class where they'll be learning the fundamentals of Christian faith. And during worship, we'll be doing the same thing. We'll be re-engaging with our beliefs and why they matter. At Rosewood, we hold to the traditional Orthodox Christian beliefs. And when we talk about Orthodox beliefs, these are the beliefs reflected in Scripture, passed down through creeds, such as the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and captured in articles of religion by various denominational movements throughout the centuries. We believe that Orthodox belief is important. It keeps us in unity with the worldwide body of Christ, and it brings us into right understanding as we grow in Jesus. So today, as we start this sermon series on uh what we believe. We're going to be looking at God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Certainly, this isn't meant to be a uh, an exhaustive or all-inclusive study on uh, that topic, but it is uh, a recap of the high points, uh, particularly in the way that they are communicated to our confirmands. So, we think about this, and we know that in the non-Christian world, there are countless concepts and ideas of God, ranging from an assertion that there isn't one. Of course, a lot of people start there. Uh, we have polytheism, we have animism, we have deism, and so on. And even within Christianity, there is a movement to allow for differences of thought on God and the nature of God, which would effectively loosen our orthodoxy. And I'm reminded of the wonderful words of the 1986 song Creed by Rich Mullins, where he says of creedal beliefs, I didn't make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. If we lose our orthodox beliefs, we are, in fact, making our own God. We're creating an idol of our own thoughts and our own opinions. We're pridefully adapting our concept of God based on our own understanding of reality rather than seeking to be shaped by the truth. And when this happens, it, it's no longer the spirit that forms us, but the flesh. Proverbs 14:12 reminds us that there is a way that seems right to a person, but it leads to death. Let us therefore revisit and re-engage with the truth that we are given. Some of it may be hard. Some of it may be confusing to us at times. I know it can be to me, but I think it's better to struggle and wrestle with the truth than to trade it for an easy-to-accept lie. Now, at Rosewood Church, we use the confession of faith that was historically the Evangelical United Brethren Confession of Faith. And we've adopted this document for use in our church. 
But to be clear, it's not uniquely correct or exclusive to other uh, statements of, of doctrine or faith that are found in other Orthodox churches and denominations. It just simply is the one that we use. And so we start with Article 1. Article 1 is uh, about God. And we say we believe in the one true, holy, and living God, eternal spirit, who is creator, sovereign, and preserver of all things visible and invisible. He's infinite in power, wisdom, justice, goodness, and love, and rules with gracious regard for the well-being and salvation of men. To the glory of his name, we believe the one God reveals himself as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct but inseparable, eternally one in essence and power. There is a great deal of euphemistic language regarding God that you'll find out in the world, and most of it is is harmless, but if it's all we know about God, if it forms our, our uh, doctrine of God, then it can be very confusing, I think. If you've heard God referenced uh, as the big guy or the man upstairs, uh, this, is, this can come into play in the way that you conceptualize God. Likewise, we have imagery of God, which we receive from religious art. You know, it's typically this old bearded Zeus-like man sitting on a cloud. These are conceptualizations used to help us comprehend what might otherwise be incomprehensible to us. They don't describe, really, though, the reality of God. In reality, God is formless, invisible spirit. His substance is utterly eternal and utterly immaterial. That is, he is not created of anything because he's not created at all. God is, instead, the creator. Before there was anything created, God was all there was. He's not a part of creation, but the originator of everything that is created. Now, our article says that he is true, holy, and living. It says that he is infinite in power, wisdom, justice, goodness, and love. The truth is that God defines all these things. Uh, we know what they are because of God. This is one of many areas where we can struggle in our minds. I've heard many argue against God by saying something that starts uh, out like this. How could a loving and just God allow, fill in your blank, starvation, slavery, war, genocide, and they conclude that God is either wicked or does not exist. And this is a complicated question, but not without answers for those who are willing to seek the truth. I bring this up to reiterate the choice once again. Will you wrestle with the truth or settle for a lie? The article asserts that God rules all things with gracious regard for the well-being and salvation of men to the glory of his name. That is, we believe that God rules over that which he has created with love, 
and mercy and seeking at all times and in all ways to bring creation into the fullness of its created purpose. The story of the Bible is the story of the creation, fall, and redemption of that creation. We tend to think of it as this ancient book from long ago, and in a way it is, but it is also a highlight reel of this narrative of creation, fall, and redemption. It tells us that we need to know, um, or it tells us all that we need to know about God. And what it tells us is this, God's whole focus with humanity is salvation. It is to get us as a creation to the place we were meant to be. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of reconciliation. This is true for us individually and as a human species. And why does God do this? He does it because it brings glory to himself. The redemption of creation glorifies the creator. Our redemption, which God achieves by God's own power, glorifies God. So all the action of God, they're they're ultimately acts of redemption and resurrection. Finally, the article says that the Bible gives us our understanding of God in the form of a trinity of God expressions, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we're not here going to go into a full-blown discussion on the Trinity, but we'll simply remember that these aspects are all fully God, equal in power, equal in authority and nature, and they're equal in glory and co-equal in majesty. In short, they're three expressions of one, not thirds of a whole, not parts that make up something more substantial. All right, so let's then proceed to that second member of the Trinity, uh, Jesus Christ. And our article, too, says this about Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, in whom the divine and human natures are perfectly and inseparably united. He is the eternal Word made flesh, the only begotten Son of the Father, born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. As ministering servant, he lived, suffered, and died on the cross. He was buried, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven to be with the Father from whence he shall return. He is eternal Savior and mediator who intercedes for us, and by him all men will be judged. The nature of Jesus Christ was a topic of many discussions, councils, and writings within the early church, within the, especially the early centuries of the church. When you consider that the whole of our faith rests on who Jesus was, what he did, and what it accomplished, it's not hard to see why they wanted to get it right. In the non-Christian world, Jesus is handled in in many ways. Uh, Some people conclude that Jesus was simply an invention of Christianity, if perhaps based loosely on a historical person. Even within some circles of Christianity, again, there are attempts to remove the supernatural elements 
of Jesus. And when we say supernatural, we mean uh, those things that only could be, have been accomplished by the power of God. So they would remove that and then focus on his life and his death as a metaphor for God's love for us. Still others champion Jesus for the freedom and the mercy he offers while rejecting the claim he puts on our life. I remember the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts that were popular a number of years ago. And look, I'm not trying to judge uh, out of turn here, but when I recall the specific celebrities who were photographed wearing those shirts at the time, I'm not sure they were an expression of that person's desire uh, to die to self and be conformed to Christ. If I can put it bluntly, our enemy, the devil, really couldn't care less about which of these you choose so long as you don't choose the truth. Words matter, and if this article about Jesus seems a little wordy, it's because it has historically been important, of course, for Christians to be precise in our language about Jesus. We start with the belief that Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man. That is, he had all the attributes of Article 1 that we read, uh, but like you and I, in every way, Jesus was a, a person, a human person. He was not a demigod like Hercules or Maui from the wonderful Disney movie Moana. And now if you have the songs from that in your head, what can I say except you're welcome? Uh, and this matters for a few reasons, that, that he wasn't, you know, a half-God, half-man kind of deal. First, only God in his fullness can be counted perfect and blameless. We need perfect and blameless to pay the penalty for our sins. And then secondly, only a sacrifice given on our behalf would be counted as sufficient. It would have to be someone who dies a mortal death in the same manner that we die. A half-God, half-man wouldn't achieve that. Jesus is the perfection of human creation, walking and living among us. The article says that he is the Word made flesh, which comes from the first chapter of John's Gospel, which tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the personified Word, the Word living and breathing as a man. The article makes it clear, as John makes it clear, that while we call Jesus the Son to give us some context for understanding, Jesus is eternal as God is eternal. For this reason, the early Christians chose the word begotten rather than created when they talk about Jesus. Over the course of many decades, which, uh, which they held councils and debates, and they determined that the Greek word monogenes was often translated as begotten. That was the word to use when describing Jesus. It denotes that while the earthly person of Jesus existed in time as a man, this aspect of the Trinity, the Son, is eternal. Again, it matters that Jesus was fully God and fully man. 
This is also why the virgin birth matters. In this case, the difference between Jesus and his cousin John the Baptist is helpful. Jesus once said that of John that there was none greater among those born of a woman. The Bible uses this phrase from time to time to denote the condition of humanity. We are those born of a woman. For instance, in Job 14.1, it says, Man who is born of woman is of a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like the flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. But John, though filled with the Holy Spirit, was conceived by a man, his father, Zechariah. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is God being born of a woman under the law and its judgment. This fact matters. Salvation, as we are given to understand it, does not work apart from the virgin birth. The article states that Jesus, in service to the world, lived, suffered, and died on the cross, was raised from the dead, and ascended to the Father. He's our eternal Savior, our means of salvation. He will judge us, and he will come again in victory. These represent the critical functions of God's Messiah, each a necessary component of salvation. The devil attacks each and every one of them inside and outside of Christianity. He challenges us to think through questions like, so what if Jesus wasn't actually resurrected? Does it really matter? Or is your salvation in Christ really assured? How can you know that? Or he'll say to us, surely Jesus, who is known for love and mercy, isn't going to judge and condemn anyone, right? Now, next month, we're going to start a a three-month, quarter-long focus on spending time with God, and we're going to kick it off by identifying and recognizing the ways that the devil tries to derail us with lies. If he can encourage you to believe a lie about Jesus, it is cause for celebration in hell. The last article we're going to look at today is Article 3, the Holy Spirit. And it says, we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from and is one in being with the Father and Son. He convinces the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He leads men through faithful response to the gospel into the fellowship of the church. He comforts, sustains, and empowers the faithful and guides them into all truth. So last we come to the Holy Spirit. And you'll recall that in Article 2, it states that Jesus is begotten of the Father. This article states that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Again, the Holy Spirit, like all parts of the Trinity, is eternal, uncreated, and fully God. But for lack of a better term, the Holy Spirit is the verb of the Trinity. It is the spiritual action in material creation. The Holy Spirit convinces and leads and comforts and sustains and empowers and guides 
uh, as the article says. Jesus Christ is the saving sacrifice, and the Holy Spirit leads us into this knowledge. John Wesley contributed greatly to the doctrine of salvation, and he puts the work of the Holy Spirit front and center. And he calls this work grace, and he identifies it in different stages, these acts of grace that at different points in our life lead us to a knowledge of salvation. Uh, He spoke first about prevenient grace, whereby the Holy Spirit is working in the lives of those who do not yet understand the reality of their sin and their need for salvation, convincing them, convicting them even, of that need in their life. And we understand that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, none of us could even know that we need to be saved at all. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, we can be led into faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He then described the work of the Holy Spirit as justifying grace. This is the grace that establishes belief in our salvation through Christ, that you and I are loved, that your sins are forgiven, and that you are now a child of God and a co-heir with Christ in God's kingdom. And Wesley said that apart from the Spirit's power, we would be, again, incapable of this sort of faith. And finally, Wesley wrote and preached about sanctifying grace. That is the work of the Holy Spirit to move you from your life in the flesh, the desires of your flesh, to true life in the Spirit. It is God working in you and on you as you increasingly yield yourself to the change. It is the power of God described by Jesus when he says in Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. We can't do this or even want to be a part of this without the work of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to think that the Holy Spirit seems to get the least of our attention the least of our focus when it comes to the Trinity, but in reality, it is our daily connection with God's redeeming work. Again, the spring quarter, we're going to be focusing on drawing near and spending time with God. We're going to explore what this means. We're going to spend time getting hands-on experience with spiritual practices, which have been used by the church since its birth to get in touch with the work of the Holy Spirit. Next week, we'll turn our attention to the Holy Scripture. What does the Bible say about itself? What did the early church believe about Scripture? And what are the implications of those beliefs? Until then, let's close with prayer. The Father is my hope. The Son is my refuge. The Holy Spirit is my protector. Glory to the holy and undivided Trinity, now and forever. Let us praise the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Let us bless and exalt God above all forever. Almighty and everlasting God, to whom we owe the grace of professing the true faith, grant that while acknowledging the glory of the eternal Trinity and adoring its unity, we may through your majestic power be confirmed in this faith and defended against all adversaries. Through Christ Jesus our Lord who lives and reigns with you 
and the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So-